As we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, our passage for today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. I encourage you open God's Word, whether that is a Bible, whether it's your phone or the notes page in your order of worship, open it, read it, be changed by it. And as we prepare to hear the words of Jesus for us today, please pray with me. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we open your word, as we listen to the very words of your Son, Jesus, we pray that we would have attentive ears, that you would pierce our inner ear so that the word may go deep within us, that it would change us to the very marrow for the very DNA of our souls. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that this can happen. And so we ask that, we pray it, we claim it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never Get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before we dive into this part of the teaching, it's important to remember that Pastor Tommy last week set up the context to understand this passage. And in fact, all the passages that we're going to be looking at leading up to Palm Sunday and Easter, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, revenge, are all examples of where Jesus fleshes out what we learned about last Sunday, that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Each of these examples are Jesus fulfilling the law. Remember in Matthew 5, 17, just before this passage, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And notice the linkage there with the law, the Old Testament law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai and the prophets. They are both law and prophets fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus makes that same linkage later in Matthew eleven thirteen when he's talking about John the Baptist. And he says, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now it's easy for us to think about prophets prophesying, right? That's what they do. The prophets prophesied until John the Baptist, who was the final prophet before Jesus began his ministry. The prophets were not abolished by Jesus' coming. He is the fulfillment of those prophecies. And in the same way, he is the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. The law of the Old Testament, the word of God given to Moses at Mount Sinai, in that moment of the formation of the people of Israel, prophesied forward to this moment where Jesus gathers his disciples on a different mountain 
And he tells them in the Beatitudes what the new people of God will look like. And then, beginning in our passage, he shows the fullness of the will of God that the Old Testament law could only point to. The law and the prophets both were looking forward to the time of fulfillment that doesn't negate the Old Testament in any way, but instead, through Jesus, brings into reality a new kingdom a new era of fulfillment. And as I read that and I thought about it, it reminded me of Galatians chapter 4, 4, which says, when the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And if you read that whole section, I know we did a section, a series on Galatians right before I got here, but if you read that whole section, Paul is teaching how God's people through Jesus, transition from one era to another. And in the first era, in the Old Testament, he describes humanity and the people of Israel as basically being like very young children, no different than slaves, who are put under the constant supervision of guardians and managers, namely the law of the Old Testament. And the second era is like when a child becomes an adult, and that's a mysterious moment for when that happens. But that's when the person no longer needs constant supervision and they have matured to the point that they receive the full-fledged rights and freedoms that adults enjoy. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just please spend some time with children. Now, let me be clear. Children are wonderful. They are precious. They are gifts from God. But... They require constant supervision, and bless their hearts, their brains just aren't fully there yet, right? They physically, biologically cannot understand the heart or the spirit of the rules, the laws of basic human interactions. I was once watching these two little children, brother and sister, playing together with fascination. Not my kids. This was long before I had children, and it should have been a warning to me, but it wasn't. The brother had one of those like small plastic bats, not like a really like hard one, but it was like one of those plastic kind of empty bats, you know. And for some reason, his brain isn't developed yet, he began to hit his sister quite violently with the bat. Now, she wasn't going to break an arm or anything, but still, in general, you don't hit people with bats. The sister begins to fake cry. That's a whole other set of issues. (laughs) And the mom interceded and sets basically a new rule, a new law to govern the behavior of the boy. And please note, you, would not, you shouldn't have to do this with adults, right? Because an adult would just know you don't hit people with bats. You don't have to like read a law about it. So the law is don't hit your sister with a bat. Very clear, very concise. Problem solved, right? Nope. Children need constant supervision, The girl was playing in one of those outdoor, like, little tiny tents or whatever, and so the boy goes out of the tent, walks around to the other side, waits until the mom is not looking, and then begins to wail on the tent as hard as his five-year-old arm will allow him to. And the whole tent begins to shake and collapse upon the girl inside. She's, like, being thrown around, and she falls down, and the mom looks over and says what moms have said to little boys for centuries, what in the world are you doing? Didn't I just tell you not to hit your sister with a bat? And he says, Mom, I'm hitting the tent with the bat. 
You ever been in that situation? Children need constant supervision. They need very specific rules and laws because they have not yet reached the age of maturity where they can be adults like their parents. In the Old Testament, the people of God, Paul says, were like children under the law of Moses. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, the religious leaders are, much like that child, teaching the people to superficially obey the letter of the law and missing completely the heart, the fullness of it. Jesus, in the fullness of time, came into the world, and those who believe in him, those who trust in him, are made by him full-fledged sons and daughters of God. In fact, God sends His very Spirit into our hearts, transforming us from undiscerning children, slaves to the law, into reflections of Jesus, who become more and more like Him each day that we follow Him. So what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount in our passage today and in our upcoming passages is that those who are to belong to God's new realm— These disciples, this new era, this new kingdom must move beyond a shallow, literal observance of the rules, however good and scriptural, to a deeper, fuller consciousness of what it means to please God, one which penetrates beneath the surface of the rules to a more radical openness to knowing and doing the underlying will of our Father in heaven. And this journey to knowing our Father's will, to becoming more and more like Jesus, only begins when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and what He has done on our behalf. It is not done like unthinking children by creating a new list of rules out of what Jesus is about to teach us. What Jesus is about to teach us is for adults. It is for those who have received the spirit of sonship that have been made to put their trust in Him and have been made new. It is the fullness of the law. It is the very heart of God, our Heavenly Father. And so Jesus starts in verse 21 saying this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. When Jesus says those of old, what He's referring to, of course, are those ancients who received the Old Testament law. The sixth of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20.13, says, You shall not murder. That's probably one of the easiest verses in the Bible. There's a couple others, but that's one of the easiest verses in the Bible to memorize. Say it with me. You shall not murder. Say it. Got it? Memorize? Check. All right, you memorized some scripture today, right? Exodus 20.13, flat says that. You shall not murder. Don't hit your sister with a bat. If you did murder someone, then you would be taken to a judge in a courtroom and be liable to judgment. And in a number of places, the Old Testament is very clear that the penalty for murder is the death penalty. Genesis 9-6, and this is actually even before the law of Moses is given how basic it is. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. To take the life of another human being unlawfully is a heinous crime because every human in some sense is universally a child of God, created in the very image of God, fallen and broken though that may be. 
Leviticus 24, 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Numbers 35, 30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death. Exodus 21, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. It's getting pretty clear, right? If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Even if a murderer is at the very altar of God, he will not find sanctuary, but will be forcibly taken and put to death. That's about as serious as you can get. God is emphatic. Don't murder each other. It seems like something we should just know, doesn't it? Reading the Old Testament, it's clear-cut. Murder, the intentional and unlawful taking of the life of another is a violation of God's will. If you do it, you will be brought to judgment and you will pay for it with your own life. The Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis at Jesus' time would have taught this. They did teach us. They told people of God, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. They taught that in order to obey this commandment, you just need to not commit homicide. Jesus disagrees. Jesus says in verse 22, but I say to you, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What just happened? I imagine that's what the disciples were thinking when they heard this. We just went from a very clear-cut Old Testament teaching. You kill someone, you get the death penalty. To you call somebody an idiot, then you're going to burn an eternal fire. At first, they might have thought he was joking. If you're angry with someone else, you could be held accountable in court. How many people would have a case against you if you could take someone to court for being angry with you? If you insult someone, you could be taken to the council, the Supreme Court, LOL. How could any judicial system function if it became a Supreme Court issue whenever anyone insulted anyone else. And then he goes even further. You are liable not only to the human court system, but to the court of God, and the penalty is far beyond the death penalty. It is eternal fire. The laughing would stop. Jesus says the person who is angry enough to utter derogatory words towards someone else, even though they seem slight, is guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. And the words that Jesus are using here reference this valley outside of Jerusalem that had once been the site of human sacrifice by fire. Later, it's where the city would dump the trash and would burn it there perpetually. And this vivid imagery of eternal fire is extremely graphic for the punishment of everyday insults. Jesus extends and fills both the depth of the sin and the depth of the penalty. Because the actual commitment of murder is only an outward manifestation of an inward attitude. The action of murder is a fruit, an externality that is produced by us, but it has its origin deep within our very hearts that begins with anger. That anger that then finds its initial expressions when we vocalize it. And that anger and those insults are just symptoms of our heart And our heart's desire, which is is basically just to get rid of somebody else who stands in our way. 
And while it would be ridiculous and foolish and laugh-worthy for human courts to try and discern the human heart, God's court, His judgment, looks beyond the surface. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, The Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 John 3.15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Jesus expands and deepens the sixth commandment. No, children. It's not enough that we just don't murder each other. We are as sons and daughters of God to be like Jesus, His true Son, the one who laid down His life for murderers, for us. Our hearts themselves, which are broken and corrupt, must be torn out, must be reshaped, must be reformed into hearts of flesh that love with a divine love and harbor no anger within them. This is who we are to be as the people of God, dramatically and radically different from the world around us, salt and light. And in the next verses, Jesus lays out two examples of what this will look like if we are his people, if we have put our trust in him, if we believe in him, if we have received a new heart and a new spirit, if eternal life is abiding in us, then loving others and being in right relationship with them will be monumentally important to us because it is monumentally important to our Father in heaven. The first example, verses 23 through 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The image is of someone who has traveled all the way to Jerusalem by foot with their animal sacrifice. They come before the altar and in the moment before the sacrifice is made, in the very temple of God, in the very presence of God, you remember that your relationship with someone else is not right. Please note, it's not that you are angry with someone else, but that someone else has something against you. Someone else is angry. They have something. And it's not qualified whether they are right or wrong. Either way, this is so important that you leave the sacrificial animal where it is, you leave the temple of God, you travel the week or so it takes to get back home in order to be reconciled with your offended brother or sister. This is how important our love for others should be. And it's a reflection of the gospel. Because what did Jesus do? Jesus left the throne in heaven. He left his Father's presence to become one of us, to seek us out so that we might be reconciled with him. If we are truly reconciled with our Father in heaven through Jesus and what he has done for us, then how can we do anything less in our own relationships, in our own lives? In those moments, and there will be those moments, where it is difficult to love others, look at the cross. Gaze upon it. 
Meditate on what Jesus has done for us, that while we were still His enemies, that we might be in right relationship with our Father in heaven, He died for us. And the gospel itself will change your heart. A second example, briefly, verses 25 through 26 is this. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Again, note that someone else is accusing you, not that you are angry with someone else. The point is this, with haste, quickly seek restored relationship. Don't allow bad relationships to remain unresolved. This parable is a pointer to the divine judgment on those whose earthly relationships don't conform to the values of the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19.2, God told Moses, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy For I, the Lord your God, am holy. As the people of God, they were to reflect God's character. They were to be holy, set apart from the world, different. And as we go through these examples, Jesus ends the whole section in Matthew 5.48 saying something very similar. He says, you therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, a reflection of God, salt and light in this world. There's a number of interpretations for what this verse means. One is that it's a pointer to Jesus, right? Because knowing that we cannot be perfect, we trust in His perfection on our behalf. And that's completely true. It's the gospel truth. Another is that that word perfection there means having attained the end or the aim The purpose has been reached. And the word is often used in the ancient literature to refer to the maturity of a child. In other words, to be perfect means to reach maturity, to reach adulthood, the end or aim of that to which the child points to. Those who, like little children, can do no more than simply keep the rules however conscientiously, haven't even started as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. Our obedience will come from our hearts as the manifestation of our new nature, as full sons and daughters of God who have been given His Spirit through Christ. We are sons and daughters of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, He has brought us into a full and perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father. And we demonstrate whose we are only and only when we exhibit the family likeness, as we love one another and as we seek reconciliation with one another just as He sought us. Amen? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, this is a hard teaching. The depth of love that we are to have for one another. You show us the true reflection of our hearts as we read Scripture. We ask by the power of the Holy Spirit 
for those of us who've never known you, for those of us who know you deeply, that you would change us into your sons and daughters, into full, mature adults who love you with all of our hearts and then demonstrate that in the way in which we live our lives and in the relationships that we have. Father, we trust in you. We trust in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.